All right. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. Made it out of the first chapter, and now we're going to begin the second. And I want to preach a message to you entitled, How Then Shall We Preach? How Then Shall We Preach? Thus far, we've been tracking Paul's argument against worldly wisdom. And the Corinthians, no doubt, were steeped in a Greek culture uh, that placed a high premium on things such as philosophy and persuasive skill and rhetoric and intellectualism and oratory, the ability to speak well, and all things that they considered wise. In verses 18 of chapter 1, uh, down uh, through about verse 25, we see that, the, that Paul begins to systematically destroy the underpinnings of human wisdom. And God does not beat around the bush when it comes to this topic. And I believe the central argument being made to the Corinthians is that the gospel ministry of which they professed to be partakers was diametrically opposed and entirely opposite to the tenets of worldly wisdom. These, these two mindsets, these two worldviews are incompatible. I think that's an important lesson for us as Christians to know today. Uh, the worldview of social Marxism is incompatible with biblical Christianity. Uh, the worldview of critical justice is incompatible with biblical Christianity. Uh, these two things cannot be mixed. Pluralism, religious pluralism is incompatible with biblical Christianity, which says there's only one God and He alone is to be worshipped. And there's no such thing as taking the good parts of these other worldviews and blending them in with our Christianity. Understand, when we do that, Christianity always suffers. It's never helped, because you cannot help upon a perfect system, perfect religion. It is a religion. It's a relationship, but it's a religion. The Bible says as much. Pure and undefiled religion. And in verses 18 through 25, we saw that God chose a foolish message. Then in 26 through 31, we saw that God chose foolish messengers. And now, when we get into chapter 2, the first five verses, we will see that God also chooses a foolish method. Foolish method. So let us read there, chapter 2, verses 1 through verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. These are the words of God. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the foolish method that God has employed to spread His gospel. We must ask, why has God done such a thing? Why has God chosen a gospel ministry that is so repugnant 
to the ears and minds and hearts of natural men. Certainly, our all-wise God, had He so pleased, could have chosen a method that He knew would have been very attractive. Even secular companies are able to come up with advertisements and commercials that, that we enjoy. God has chosen to go an entirely different route. And I believe He's done that in order to demonstrate that His ways are not our ways. That His thoughts are not our thoughts. In order to reveal to us that what we think is so wise and so brilliant is just a heaping pile of foolishness before our God, who is true wisdom, truly wise. In order to leave no questions about the success of the gospel ministry. If this gospel is to take root in the world, as indeed it has, it must be. Because God is empowering it in a supernatural way that overcomes the natural repulsion of mankind. Naturally, none of us enjoy the gospel. The gospel tells us that we're wretched sinners. The gospel tells us that we're totally depraved. The gospel tells us that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And none of you like hearing that. We like to hear about how good we are. We like to hear about how skilled we are, how gifted we are. And I don't think it's wrong to acknowledge admirable qualities and characteristics in other people. Obviously not. But when we do that, we must understand that we're comparing ourselves with other men. If I say that Jackson is a good football player, I'm comparing him to other men that have played football. I'm saying, you're better than those guys. When it comes to morality, when it comes to ethics, we don't compare ourselves to other men. Because other men are not the standard for morality and ethics. God is the standard for morality and ethics. And when we compare ourselves to God, none of us look so hot. Amen. That's the message of the gospel. That's the, the, the beginning of the gospel. Certainly not the whole gospel. If it ended there, it would be pretty miserable news. But see, we, we need to hear that bad news before we can ever understand anything about the good news. The Puritans used to say, before the scarlet thread of Christ can flow through our soul, we must first be pierced by the sharp needle of the law, which condemns us and debases us and brings us down. And so if, if one comes to believe the gospel, it must be, because God has revealed this truth to them, which in their natural condition they would never come to understand. God has manifested in the gospel that the results and the success of the ministry do not come from us. And He's also manifested the preeminence of the person and work of Jesus Christ over every scheme, every thought, every plan, every idea, every value, every notion, every surmising of man. This is why God has chosen to do these things the way that He has and I want you to also understand that this study concerning worldly philosophy in chapters 1 and now chapter 2, it's not some detached discussion. It's not as if, don't read the book of 1 Corinthians like a set of Chester drawers where Paul deals with this topic and then he closes it, and this topic and then he closes it. No, it's a letter 
where everything connects. When you write an essay, when we teach how to write essays in school, we, teach, we try to teach the students that your first paragraph needs to connect with your second paragraph, and your second paragraph needs to connect with your third paragraph, and I need to be able to see how your ideas connect with one another. And so it's the same with Paul's letter. He begins his letter with this discussion because this issue strikes at the heart of the true gospel. It is this issue that was the number one problem in the Corinthian church. If you know anything about Corinth, if you've been here through this study, you know that this church dealt with so many problems. All kinds of issues. People showing up drunk to church. Men dating their father's wives. All kinds of garbage was just rampant in the Corinthian church. Why didn't Paul deal with those issues? Don't you think showing up drunk to church is a pretty big deal? I mean, don't you think shacking up with your mother-in-law is a big deal? It's a pretty big deal. Or your stepmother, I should say. Why didn't Paul begin with that? Because Paul understood those problems were a subset of a more fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Amen. And that's why we have all the problems that we have in American Christianity and in evangelical churches. All sin, all error, at, at the fundamental level, it's a misunderstanding of who God is and what He requires. And so before Paul can address anything else, which he will, and we will get to, he must drop anchor on the vanity of worldly wisdom. These verses in chapter 2, the ones that I just read and you're hearing, these are not secondary in importance. These are primary in importance. Some commentators have even argued that this text is the theme of the entire epistle. These verses that we just read, hey, if you take this out, the whole book ceases to make any sense. So because of this significance of this crucial text, I want to really focus in on what is being said, what is being discussed. And just like Paul does it, I don't want to beat around the bush on these issues. And I may say some things in a very pointed and in a very direct way. And I want you to know that I do so out of love because that's, that's how Paul was communicating. A love for you, a love for Christ's church, and a love for the souls of men and women that desperately need a faithful Christian witness. If the church falls, do you realize there's, there's no testimony, there's no light? Well, pray for Paris. Well, if there's no church, if there's no solid church preaching a biblical gospel, what are those prayers good for? Eternal lives are at stake, friend. We don't have time to play games. We don't have time to, to waste time. And so as we move to the grand finale, this exposition, this dissection of the wisdom and foolishness of the world, we need to really focus on how does this apply to us? That's what this message is. This message is the great synthesis of all this conversation on wisdom. How does this apply to us? And I want to ask one final question. The title of the message how then shall we preach? How then shall we preach? In light of what God has decreed concerning worldly wisdom and philosophy, 
the mindset of the world and the mindset of the Christian. How then shall we preach? God has appointed preaching as the chief means of spreading the gospel and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We already studied that it is by the foolishness of preaching that God saves those that believe. And so the question we must answer is in light of what He's already said, how then shall we preach in light of the foolishness of the gospel and the foolishness of its messengers? God has tasked His church with the responsibility of spreading the gospel throughout the whole world. Where does that begin? That begins in these pews. And then in this community. And then in this county. And this state. And this country. And throughout the whole world. And if we are to be obedient and pleasing to God. If we are to be obedient and pleasing to God. We must carry out this task in the manner in which He has ordained. It's God's gospel. It's not ours. We must preach it God's way. And so from this text, I'm going to show you five things that biblical preaching must be. Five things that biblical preaching must be. I'll give them to you so you know where we're going. It must be gospel declaring. It must be Christ exalting. It must be man humbling. It must be spirit demonstrating. And it must be God glorifying. Those are the five things that biblical preaching must be as we find it in our text. And this is not a list of what makes good preachers better or what makes bad preachers good. This is a rubric that separates biblical ministry that is pleasing to God from a false ministry that God abhors. And if we lack any one of these five things, it is not biblical preaching. I don't think, because I know some of you are probably already there in your minds, don't think that because you're not a pastor or a Bible teacher that you're safe from this message. You may never get behind a pulpit to preach a sermon, but all of you are commanded to preach the gospel in your daily life, in your encounters with the world around you. I could very easily say, these are five things that your Christian witness must be. These are five things that your conversations with unbelievers must be. All of those are preaching. And this applies to all of us, especially to those of us that are in formal ministry or considering formal ministry, which I know several in the congregation are doing. So I think this is apt and fitting for all of us. So five things that... Biblical preaching must be, number one, biblical preaching must be gospel declaring. Gospel declaring. Look at verse one. And I, brethren, when I came to you, this is a reference to Paul's second visit to Corinth, recorded there in Acts chapter 18. And this epistle was written roughly five years after his visit. So when Paul says this, he's saying, when I came to you five years ago, came not. Notice the emphasis. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not. And and, and in the original there, we would literally hear it, when I came to you, I came not. So he's emphasizing his coming unto them. And he says, I came not with excellency of speech 
or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now, for those of you that have studied your New Testaments, when Paul comes to Corinth in Acts 18, where did he just leave from? He just left from the city of Athens, the hub of all things Greek. You think Corinth was steeped in Greek philosophy, not more than Athens. And he preached that famous sermon there on Mars Hill. You read about it in Acts 17. And some received it, but most of them rejected it. And he was kicked out of the city. And so now as he's coming to Corinth, if there was ever a time in which Paul might consider changing up his ministry strategy, now would be it. Perhaps Paul on the way to Corinth is thinking, you know, before I get to this next city, I'm going to change my delivery a little bit, change my message a little bit, so that I will receive some more reception. But what we find in this text is that Paul changed absolutely nothing. The response of his audience did not affect, in the slightest yoda, how he delivered the truths that he was commissioned to preach. He refused to tailor his message according to the responses that he received. And in this way, Paul exemplifies what faithfulness in the ministry looks like. He does not borrow from the world. He does not water down the truths of Christ. He does not alter his delivery to appeal to the vain desires of the audience. He said, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. Paul put no stock in the two things that the Corinthians desired the most in a public speaker. These two things, excellency of speech and wisdom, they encompass both the form of and the content of one's address. What they're saying and how they're saying it. Excellency of speech refers to a style that takes away from what is being said and places the focus on how it is being said. As a matter of fact, the Greeks were so into debate that they would often uh, woo and, and they would be amazed when one debater could take a weaker position and could argue in such a flamboyant style that he would win the debate, even though everyone knew that he was factually wrong. Because they prized his skill, his oration, his speaking ability. Sometimes you don't even realize how awful the content is because it's presented in such a glamorous way. A lot of ways, that's what makes a good salesman. You ever met somebody that could just sell anything? I mean, he could sell ice to an Eskimo... But sadly, there's also an abundance of men who get behind pulpits each and every Sunday. They do the same thing. There's no content in their message, there's no truth in their message. Boy, they look good, they sound good, and they're received by vast multitudes. Excuse my country terminology, but I always grew up hearing the saying, if you put lipstick on a pig, yes, yes, sir. it's still just a pig. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if we're able to use Christian vocabulary and use theological jargon 
And if we're able to look really cool and sound really cool and be really convenient, we're not preaching the truth of the Word of God. Vanity. We're building an empire of dirt, not the kingdom of Christ. Now by this saying, excellency of speech, by refusing to come with excellency of speech, Paul did not mean that he spoke with a limited vocabulary, or that he shied away from complex subjects, or that he dumbed down his preaching. That's not what he's talking about at all. Paul was a very learned man, and it comes across in his writings. But what Paul is saying is that though he may have spoken with eloquence, though he may have written in a... In a advanced manner. He placed all his thrust and all the emphasis on what he said, not on how he said it. It's wonderful when a man does know how to speak publicly. When he does know a few words with more than two syllables in them. I think that can actually enhance our gospel preaching. But when we begin to take those things, the the presentation and we exalt it and elevate it above the message. We're not doing the ministry of God. Paul also said he didn't come with wisdom. This implies the line of argumentation that was so widely popular in the Corinthians' day. Paul saw no need for the rhetorical arguments of the Greek speakers. He refused to be what the world around him wanted him to be. He wanted his Message to be one and the same with his method. And the gospel has no need for excellency of speech. The gospel has no need for worldly wisdom. The gospel doesn't need our help. Amen. We just need to faithfully declare it. Amen. It's not dependent upon us. We are dependent upon it. Paul describes the centrality of his ministry in verse 1. Declaring unto you the testimony of God. The first thing that biblical preaching must be is gospel declaring. The testimony of God is simply a reference to the gospel. It is God's testimony of who He is and what He has done. And Paul was not an entertainer. Paul was not a motivational speaker. Paul was not a life coach. Paul was not a debater. Paul was not a rhetorician. Paul was a gospel preacher. And like a witness giving their testimony in court, Paul saw the task before him as declaring in a pointed, straightforward fashion the unadulterated, pure, high-octane gospel message of Jesus Christ. He had no time for tricks or gimmicks. He refused to cater to the carnal desires of his hearers. He declined to say what his audience wanted to hear just because they wanted to hear it. Paul was committed not to preach about the gospel, but to preach the gospel. So many churches, so many platforms have been built about the gospel, about Jesus, but they don't preach Jesus. They don't preach the gospel. They used the gospel as a step stool to further their own agenda. But Paul was firm and steadfast in his proclamation of the biblical gospel. And this must characterize our preaching. This must be the sum of our witness in the world around us. We must be known as people of the gospel. The gospel must be on the tips of our tongues at all times. 
We must be ever ready to declare it. We must be ever ready to share the precious news of Jesus Christ. Amen. If God had determined to save men through knowledge, we must needs all become teachers. If God had determined to save men through worldly wisdom, then we all need to become philosophers. But since God has determined to save His people through the faithful declaration of the gospel and nothing else, we need to be preachers. All of us. And our preaching must be gospel declaring. Second thing that biblical preaching must be is Christ exalting. Look at verse 2. What a powerful verse. Perhaps the theme verse of this whole epistle. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When preaching the gospel, we must strive and endeavor to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Exalt Him. Lift Him up. Proclaim Him. Emphasize Him. Elevate Him above all other messages. May Christ be the beginning, middle, and end of every sermon. May Christ be the theme of every song. May Christ be the medium of every prayer. May we preach Christ as He is in the fullness of His glory. May we spend our whole lives, use all of our abilities, and exhaust all of our resources to exalt Jesus Christ. May we say with John the Baptist of old, He must increase, I must decrease. Notice that Paul said at the beginning of the verse, I determined, for I determined. We must be purposeful about this. We must make a conscientious effort to ensure that Christ has the preeminence in all that we do in the Christian ministry. It is so easy for us to allow other doctrines to creep up and supersede the primacy of Christ. We must cast everything down before Him. Everything in our Christian worldview and thinking and doctrinal beliefs and convictions, everything in our practical day-to-day living, our entanglements with the secular world, even our friends and our family and the things that we hold nearest and dearest must be all put on the altar for the sake of Christ's honor, glory, and exaltation. As we read, even through this book, we're going to encounter many, many topics and issues. And by saying that Paul endeavored not to know anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it doesn't mean that he shies away from other topics. Just like I'm not telling you to shy away from any of your other obligations or responsibilities. But rather, what we need to understand is that all teachings and all doctrines and all practices and everything we are and do must never be presented as independent from Christ. None of us will ever fully comprehend the impact that was had upon the world 2,000 years ago when Jesus of Nazareth went to Calvary's cross and gave His life and shed His blood for us. There's nothing that has ever happened in human history before or since that was not in some way affected by that cross. There's not a verse in this book that His cross does not have bearing, relevance, and impact upon. Biblical preaching is Christ exalting. What does it mean to exalt Christ? It means that all of our preaching and everything else 
Every conviction we hold dear must flow through Calvary. Calvary must be the great filter and sifter of everything else. How dreadful it is for us to elevate other doctrines. Not even just above, but even to the same level as the doctrine of Christ. Too many Christians have made pet idols out of a multitude of Bible doctrines. Shame on us. If we care more about the clothes someone wears, or the music someone listens to, or the movies that they watch, or what they believe about the church, or what they believe about end times, or what they believe about baptism, more than we care about what they believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of those things that I just mentioned are are important. And, And I have convictions in all of those areas. But I have great liberty and charity for those who perhaps fall down on other sides of those issues. You may be wrong about many things and you're still serving the Lord. And no doubt I'm wrong about many things. And you are too. By God's grace, He'll reveal those things to us. But I have no room for disagreement when it comes to who Jesus is. Amen. Do you understand that if you're wrong about who Jesus Christ is, you're not a Christian. You might be wrong about a host of other things in the Bible. But if you're wrong about Jesus, you're lost. So forbid it that we should ever make the person and work of Jesus Christ anything other than the centerpiece, the fulcrum, the platform upon which all other things are builded up. The solid rock upon which the whole host of Christianity is set is the person of Christ. What does it mean to exalt Christ? It means preaching Him as He is, not as you want Him to be. Amen. It means preaching Christ in the way that He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. A Christ is not who is not the sovereign Lord over all is a false Christ. A Jesus that is approving of your sins and your unholiness is not the real Jesus. The true Jesus is immaculate in His character, perfect in His morality. The true Jesus is sovereign in the dispensation of His grace. The Jesus Christ of the Bible did not come to affirm sinners or to make them feel better about themselves. He came to save sinners. That's the Jesus we must preach. What does it mean to exalt Christ? It means to embrace and cherish the precious truths of His death, burial, and resurrection. If you think His purpose was to come and be a good teacher, to show us how to be nice to one another, then you don't know Him. Christ came for one ultimate purpose. and It was to die. To die upon a Roman cross. Because it is that death in which the power of God is displayed and performed and accomplishes the divine purposes. It's not the parables of Christ that save us. It's not the miracles of Christ that save us. It's not just the fact that He ate with sinners that saves us 
or that He gave to the poor, or that He healed the sick or raised the dead. All of those things are true. I believe every account of the Bible in which He does these things. But if you were to ask me, what is it about Jesus that makes Him the Savior of the world? I pray that without even taking a breath, I will tell you that it is His death on the cross of Calvary as a substitute for sinners. Amen. This kind of preaching is countercultural and it's unsettling in Paul's day and in ours as well. The world is enamored with a sissified, needy Jesus, with a Jesus who is impotent to accomplish his purposes, with a Jesus who depends upon man to complete the work of redemption. How is this Jesus preached? He's preached like this. Well, Jesus loves you. And Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. And Jesus just wants to save you. And you're breaking His heart by not coming to Him. So you need to come down this altar. And you need to repeat this prayer after me. And you need to accept Jesus so that He can be satisfied. Friend, Jesus does not need you. You need Him. Amen. That's exalting Christ. Anything less is exalting man. To a place he was never intended to go. Amen. And if this Jesus of whom I now speak sounds strange and foreign to you and contradicts every notion you have about him, perhaps you don't know him. Do you know the Christ who is mighty? Do you know the Christ who is holy? Do you know the Christ who bled and died to save his people from their sin? Do you know the Christ that suffered under the wrath of God in your place? Do you know that the Christ who is risen again, who is Lord over all, do you know that Christ? This is the Christ of the Bible. This is the Christ we must exalt. The Christ that is the Savior of sinners. The Christ that is holy, holy, holy. The Christ that is altogether lovely. And if our preaching is biblical, it must be Christ-exalting. Thirdly, biblical preaching is man-humbling. If Christ is exalted, man will be humbled. Only when Christ is exalted will man be humbled. Only when you see God for who He is Will you begin to see yourself for who you are? Look at verse 3. Paul says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I identify with what Paul is saying. Weakness, fear, and trembling are the effects produced in an individual who has truly encountered the real Christ. Paul has sensed the gravity of his ministry with verse 3. He understands the task that God has commissioned him with. He understands the weight of what God has called him to do. And he understands the bearing that it has upon the rest of his life. I'm, I'm thankful for God's calling upon my life. And I pray that you're thankful for whatever and wherever he has put you. And if, I, if I'm going to be very vulnerable with you for a few seconds, let me tell you this. I know that it might seem 
like an impossible thing to do to get up two or three times a week and to tell people in a voice that is above room volume about Jesus Christ. But I would be lying to you if I told you that I was never nervous, if I told you I never trembled. Now, I'm not nervous to speak in front of people, but because I am a man just like you are, human just like you are, I too have those feelings that say, I I see what the text says, I see what the Bible says, I see how Christ is presented, and I know that if I talk about this Jesus to other people, they're not going to like it very much. They're not going to like me very much. They may never come back. They may leave this church and never return. They may write me off as a crazy man. If you think that I don't think these things, I do. Paul did. I think that's why Paul says that he comes with weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He didn't want to come with this mindset of, I'm right and you're wrong, and this pompous arrogance that God hates. This display of meekness and humility was not virtuous to the Corinthians who valued self-confidence in lofty presentations. Paul would have come across as radically different. You understand that? Just totally different than the other speakers in Corinth. See, the philosophers in Corinth, they trusted in themselves. They relied on their own intellect, their own ability and skill to wow and persuade the audience. Do you see here that Paul's trust is in something entirely outside of himself? One of the easiest ways to be an absolute failure in the Christian ministry and in the Christian life is to rely on yourself. Our confidence and boldness must always come from the message of God and never from our ability to convey it. When I begin to think thoughts like, well, if I word it this way, maybe they'll accept it a little easier. It's not the thinking that God has. Well, if, if I skip over this phrase, because this phrase is really hard for us to come to grips with, the sermon won't be so rough. It's not the way God has commissioned us. See, we are just God's mouthpiece. We must be lowered and debased. And really and truly, we must just get out of the way so that the impetus is upon the message of Christ and His gospel. May all the focus be on the message and not the messenger. May the the gospel and may the ministry, may the, the preaching of this church and in your lives be that which is man humbling. Amen. Both the preacher needs to be humbled. I myself need to come before you with humility and meekness. And you need to be humbled when you hear these words. Harden not your hearts. If you are sitting there with feelings of pride, I fear for you. If you've already written off this message, I fear for you. I fear for your soul. 
Just like I fear for any preacher that gets up and thinks that he's going to do God's work through the strength of his own flesh. Biblical preaching is the kind that humbles us. When Christ is exalted, man is put low. Fourth thing that biblical preaching must be is it must be spirit demonstrating. Look at verse 4. Paul says, "In my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Again, biblical preaching is not dependent upon the rhetoric and persuasion tactics of men. Now this is not to say that we're not to plead with sinners. This is not to say that we're to be stiff as cardboard, dry as a saltine cracker. Paul pled with sinners. Paul begged sinners. I believe we're to to do the same. We're to implore and we're to beseech men and women to come to Christ. Come to Christ. There's no such thing as tricking men into salvation. That's what Paul's saying. Enticing words. There's no such thing as arm twisting and prayer repeating as the God-ordained means of propagating the gospel. Our job is very simple. Your job is very simple. It is to be a testimony in word and deed to the truth of the Bible and Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Manipulation never produces regeneration. If all we do is attract carnal men with carnal means, we will have nothing but carnality. Paul understood that what you win people with, you win them to. Perhaps we could have something that would draw in folks other than the gospel and the preaching of Christ. Whatever it may be, whatever a church could come up with, I'm sure there's somebody doing it. But you realize if you have people coming because of a teen ministry or because of a music ministry or because of a whatever then as soon as you take that away, guess what they're going to do? They're going to leave. That's why we must, if we do those other things, which a lot of them are wonderful things, they must be centered and based in our first and foremost ministry, which is the propagation of Christ. The triumph of the gospel over the heart and hearts of sinners is not a result of our ability or our wit or our schemes, or our plans. But it's of the power of God. Amen. Notice verse 4, the end of it. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And this is not referring to speaking in tongues, or flopping on the floor, or screaming, or crying, or running around. That's not what he's talking about here. The demonstration of the Spirit is that special ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, fulfilling His obligation in the covenant of redemption. You understand that? That before the foundation of the world, God the Father elected a people that He would save by His grace and for His glory, and Jesus Christ the Son agreed to come and to die for them. And the Holy Spirit agreed to personally come to their heart open their blinded eyes, loose their deafened tongues, 
and to reveal to them what Christ had accomplished on the cross. Amen. The only hope we have for our preaching to accomplish anything is not our ability or the strength of our arguments, but the power of the Holy Spirit using our message to accomplish a divine purpose. We must trust in this sufficiency of the Holy Spirit to save sinners. Only He can make alive those which are dead. And our ministry is vanity of vanities if all we have is what we are able to do. For we can do nothing apart from Him. I have no ability to save anyone. You have no ability to save anyone. But what you can do, what you must do, is preach the message which they must believe to be saved and trust the Spirit of God to apply that message to their heart. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in biblical preaching, The Gospel is preached in the ears of all men. It only comes with power to some. The power that is in the Gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher, otherwise men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning, otherwise it could consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless there were mysterious power going with it. The Holy Ghost changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might preach as well to stone walls as to preach to humanity unless the Holy Ghost be with the Word to give it power to convert the soul. In 2 Timothy, as Paul is writing, Paul says to the young preacher Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 25, he says, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Did you see that? What is the only hope in the gospel ministry? What is my only hope for you? What is your only hope with unbelievers that you talk to? If God, if God, not if you have studied enough, if you are learned enough, if you have presented it well enough, but if God... Her adventure. Is God obligated to save anyone? No, if God, per adventure, on the basis of His grace and mercy, will give them repentance. That faith, that repentance, uh, that's not something you did. It's something God gave you. When we preach the message of Christ and Him crucified, and we pray, and we beg God we plead with Him to grant repentance to the hearts of men. When it comes to the results of our ministry, it's not us, us, us. It's God, God, God. Amen. My stomach just turns when I hear preachers talk about how they get people saved. In February of this year, I was out in Oklahoma preaching in a conference, Smithville. I was preaching a morning service. I was preaching Psalm 96. And there was a lady in the congregation who was watching her as I was preaching. 
And she began to weep. She began to cry. Very emotional. After the message, she just quietly gets up and she walks over to her pastor who was hosting the conference. I was preaching at their church. She just asks him if, if he would pray for her. She was already a church member. She'd already made a profession of faith. Everyone thought she was a Christian. And so we, we halted. There was another preacher that was supposed to come after that. But we went into just a, a time of quiet prayer. And after praying for about ten minutes, she stood up in front of the church and she just said, I came in this morning thinking that I was a Christian. But I now know that I've been a false convert all of these years. But God has saved me this morning. Amen. Now, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that that affirmed my calling. I was yeah. thrilled to hear that. Yeah. But you know what the real blessing was? The real blessing was after the morning service when we went to lunch. And Jennifer came up to me. And Jennifer said, As you were preaching... I began to forget that you were even talking. Well, she said, I can't remember your outline. I don't really even remember all the different points you were making. If you were using alliteration, I have no idea. It was God that saved me. Yes. Amen. And that's a more sure testimony. Because that's God doing the work, you see. That's, that's God getting me out of the way. And just using the message. What a brilliant God to do that. To use feeble men like me and like you to accomplish His purposes. Biblical preaching must be Spirit demonstrating. The Spirit demonstrated Himself in that lady's heart that day. And it wasn't eccentric. It wasn't running around. It wasn't emotionalism. It was true faith and repentance being given to her it was the power of God that changed her life, something no man could have ever done. No woman could have ever done. The last thing biblical preaching must be is it must be God-glorifying. Yes. Right. Look at verse 5. God-glorifying. That your faith, that, so we see that word that, Paul's saying, here's my conclusion, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The final marking of biblical preaching is that all glory and all praise and all honor will unilaterally be attributed to God. Amen. When Jennifer was converted and her pastor got up to make some remarks after the service, he did not say, what a great message we heard from Brother Glitch. He did not say, I'm so thankful to all the preachers that traveled to be here today. No, he said, rightly so. What a great God Amen. that saves sinners through the preaching of His Word, through the testimony of Christ, through the power of the Spirit. If you want to determine whether or not preaching is biblical as you're listening to preaching online or you're visiting with another congregation somewhere, ask this question. Who is getting the glory? Who is being lifted up? Is the glory going to sinners for what good decisions they've made? Is the glory going to the preacher for what an excellent presenter he is? Or is all the glory going to God 
for who he is and what he has done. Two men were visiting the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 1800s where Spurgeon pastored. And after hearing him preach, one man said to the other, What a great preacher of God that man is. The other man said, What a great God that man preaches. See, the blessing of understanding that the results are entirely up to God is that it takes the pressure off of your feeble ability to present it. If you preach the gospel, if you, if you tell someone about Christ, the only thing you need to be concerned about is, was I accurately representing who He is? Don't worry about stuttering over some words or leaving out a detail here and there. Just be as faithful as you can with the presentation and leave the rest to God. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know, he wanted them to, to rest that your faith should not stand here, he says. Don't have faith in the wisdom of men. Don't have faith in me. Don't say, I am a Christian and I am at this church because Paul visited us. No, my faith is in the power of God. And if you were saved here today, it is because God saved you. Amen. If your life has been changed by the gospel message, that is not evidence of your decision making or the eloquence of some preacher, that is the demonstration of the Spirit and His power. Amen. Well, this is a message that I believe is so needful in our day. Most of the preaching that goes on in churches all across America is just pure rubbish. America is filled with churches from coast to coast. Yet, our morality continues to plummet. Our knowledge and love of God continues to decline. Because most of what goes on in American pulpits is unbiblical preaching that is not blessed by God. That's right. And many of the preachers in this country are not the gift of God, they're the curse of God. Right. I know that sounds harsh. I know that is harsh. But just look for yourselves. Drive around Henry County and see all of the churches that exist in this town and in this county and then look at the stats. How's our divorce rate looking in Henry County? How's our abortion rate looking in Henry County? How's our drug addiction rate looking in Henry County? May we endeavor to preach biblically. Only in preaching biblically Will the souls of men be transformed? And only when the souls of men are transformed will any of those other issues that I just cited have any substantial change. If we do not understand who Christ is, we won't be able to preach Him accurately. And if we do understand, it's only because God has revealed Him to us. But for the grace of God, let me say this as well, but for the grace of God, this church would be no different. Yes. You understand that? Yep. I know that we're, we're hitting hard tonight on other churches and other preachers and other ministries. But I don't want to preach that in any way that makes us better than what we are. But for the grace of God, I would be just another religious huckster. But for the grace of God, you would be filling the pews at some impotent, man-pleasing, Christ-denying social gathering. Amen. We better thank God for what He's given to us. 
We better thank God that He's showed us these things to be true. And I pray that we would never stray from biblical preaching. That is gospel declaring, Christ exalting, man humbling, spirit demonstrating, God glorifying. I pray that long after I'm dead and gone, there will still be a pulpit in this city with a man behind it who preaches Christ and Him crucified by the grace of God. Amen. Because only where Christ is preached in the power of God will He be truly experienced in the hearts of men. And I pray that you've experienced Christ this way. I pray that you've humbled yourself and you've come to Him and now you are equipped to tell others. I know this was a bit long tonight, but I thank you for your attention, your attentiveness, and I pray that this caused you to think about what God has revealed to you, what He now requires of you. Don't keep Christ to yourself. Spread Him abroad. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us. We praise You for the truth of the Gospel. This wonderful message. This precious doctrine of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us never get caught in traditionalism or formality. And oh God, let us hate as you hate worldly wisdom. And love as you love gospel truth. Bless us as we depart. Keep us until we meet again. Help us to fulfill all you've commissioned us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.